Okay, we are carrying on in our study through the book of Revelation. We've come as far as chapter 17 this morning. Let's just read just a portion of that before we get into the study proper. So just uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 17. I'm just going to read the first five verses. Uh, it just starts, it says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come here, then I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-coloured beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This is our hearts. Father, as we study this morning through these verses, Lord, as we look at this chapter, Father, we ask that you speak to us and just give us understanding and insight from your Holy Spirit. Father, we recognize that those that think with a natural mind will not discern the things of God. Lord, your word tells us that man's wisdom is but foolishness. And so, Lord, we want to be able to think spiritually. We want to, Lord, think and look at things from your perspective and see, Lord, the the truths that you've revealed here for us to understand. Lord, this book has been given that we might know the things that are coming to pass, not that they would be hidden or concealed. So, Father, help us to understand, we pray. Lord, just use this time to encourage us, to inform us, Lord, educate us. But, Lord, most importantly, to draw us closer to our Saviour Jesus. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you're going to cut butter, you'll probably use a, a butter knife. But if you're going to try and cut steak with that same knife, it's not going to work all that well. You need a steak knife to cut steak. Uh, the reason I say that is because Revelation is a little bit like a steak in some senses. There's portions of scripture that you can read and it's very easy to digest and we get it immediately and it kind of brings blessing. Revelation, sometimes you need to just cut a little bit harder. Um, to get through it. And there are portions, like we're going to look at this morning, that sometimes on the surface may seem confusing to us. They may seem a little strange, the, the types of shadows that are used. And yet everything is there. It's all revealed for us in the text itself. We just need to be patient and read. And sometimes take a little bit longer, um, not expecting to understand things instantly. But going, we'll look later. But God says he's not the author of confusion. God doesn't want us to be confused about these things. And as I said, you know, at the beginning of... This book, the book of Revelation, we find that God gave this revelation to an angel who gave it to, or gave it to Jesus rather, gave it to an angel who gave it to John, so that we would know. So these suggestions that go around, that it's such a common thing, oh, revelation is very hard to understand. It's not really. It's, it's, you know, we all watch programs, I'm sure, on the television. We see murder mystery or the drama or whatever else, and... You know, you kind of sit there and you try to figure out the plot. Well, it's not that dissimilar. God has given us all the clues, but God doesn't just give it to us all on a plate in a sense. He's given it here for those that are diligent, that they would understand and know. So, what I want to do this morning is just start, because it happens to be extremely topical, and yet fits like a glove with this portion of scripture we're going to be looking at. It's just to talk briefly about Europe. Now we're all aware that we're coming up to a very important vote where we've got to make a decision as to whether we as a country remain in Europe or come out of Europe. And just a a little bit of background, I'm sure many of you are familiar with these things, but 1949, after the end of the First World War, we have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization set up and and agreed. So this is very much a a defense alliance for Europe to try and prevent something like the First First and Second World Wars ever occurring again. NATO, you're familiar with that term, we hear it so often. That's still in existence today and operates independently of other things European. In 1951, there's this agreement that's uh, signed between France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Luxembourg and Holland. 
um, the European Coal and Steel Community was established. And again, this was very much a trade agreement just to, again, stop any one country becoming dominant and leading to the things that led to the First and Second World Wars again. So that leads us then to 1957. Now this is really interesting because we have another agreement but what's interesting about this from a biblical perspective is the name of the agreement and where it was signed. This agreement was called the Treaty of Rome and once again signed between these six nations that had made up this group that became known as the EEC. But this treaty was signed in Rome itself, hence the name the Treaty of Rome. But in a building that was built on the very site of where the temple to Jupiter had once stood. Now, in Revelation, we find in chapter 2.13, way back there, if you remember, we were looking at the churches and church of Pergamos, there's a reference to Satan's seat being there. And it has to do with this altar to Zeus that was there, and the worship that went on, and uh, very much a satanic kind of uh, pagan worship that was taking place. Well, for the Greeks we have Zeus, but for the Romans, the same god in their vernacular is Jupiter. Interesting enough, a lot of these things go all the way back to Noah's descendants, Noah's children. Jupiter is really just a derivation of Japheth. And those people after the flood began to be revered, possibly because of the great ages they lived to, and so on. It became folklore originally, and then it becomes distorted a little bit and built more and becomes mythology, and we have obviously all the, the Greek mythology and ideas and so on. But by signing the treaty in this particular place, it was a real snub, in a sense, to Europe's Christian heritage. By signing this treaty in that particular place. And there seems to be some sort of underlying intent behind that. As I said, that then leads to the European Economic Community. In 1963, there was the Treaty of Elysee. That was an agreement between France and Germany for them to work closer together. And then ten years later, under Edward Heath, Britain joins the EEC. And we get to Europe as it's effectively known today. And there's no secret that what's really going on behind the scenes here is a work towards a United States of Europe. You know, with one central government governing all. And of course we are moving closer and closer. So much of the the funds, your tax that you're paying, is a lot of this is going to Europe to fund the uh, the people that are making the decisions, that are setting the laws. And some of you may think it's a good thing, some of you may think it's a bad thing. I'm not here to comment on the political side so much. But I do want to highlight a few things that you might not be aware of. And really I just pose this as a question for you. As to why. Now the first thing, we read a moment ago in Revelation 17, that John sees this vision, he's seeing this, uh, clearly it's a judgment of this this whore, this this harlot that's going to be described for us. And yet we we find that in verse 3, John is carried away into the wilderness in his vision, he says, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-coloured beast. Now, outside of the EU offices in Brussels, we have a woman sat upon a beast. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. It is because it's the depiction of Europa sitting upon Zeus. Now, Greek mythology tells us that Europa was this beautiful woman and Zeus decided this, this god-like character that he wanted to uh, acquire her, shall we say. And so he turns himself into the form of this beast, comes out of the sea, which is interesting in itself, if you remember some of the prophecies we looked at in Revelation 13. And effectively gets her to come and sit on his back and then takes across the sea and so on. Now, that's partly why they have it there. But it's just interesting that Europe is so willing to be aligned with these things, willingly and intentionally, on the Greek to Euro coin, the woman on the beast once again. We find on the European residence permits that are issued throughout the EU, we've again got this symbol of a beast that's there. On a British stamp that was issued, once again we have Europa sat upon a beast. Now clearly, just going back to the residence permits, Europe sees itself as the beast. So the question is, who is the woman in the context? Outside the European Parliament building in Strasbourg, we also have a woman sat upon a beast. That's interesting. Just something else to highlight. You may just about see from the picture here, that at the rear end of this, this beast, this bull, there's these ten rings. That's curious. Because when 
this whole European Confederacy agreement was started off, there were six nations. And when Britain joined, there was 12 nations. So why 10? There's no logical reason. There's never, 10 has never been ever part of this setup. Never, there's, there's never been 10 nations. And yet, of course, you remember in Daniel's prophecy and in Revelation 13 also, we find that there's going to be these 10 nations that will be under Antichrist. Just curious. Now, something else just of interest maybe, um, this individual Peter Bruegel back in 1540-something, I believe it was, this famous painting of the Tower of Babel, you may have seen that image before, just trying to depict in, in his mind what this whole thing would have looked like. Well, it's interesting to note that in an advert that was released, a publicity thing for the EEC, and obviously the European Union as it has become, they used this very picture. And there's the title, the slogan, you may be able to read down here, Europe, many tongues, one voice. I mean, they're blatantly saying that they're trying to undo the effects of the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages of the world because the world was trying to get a one-world government, and with a one-world government becomes so many issues and problems. The dictatorship that we'll ultimately see with Antichrist, re-establishing what God tried to stop the first time, when Satan was doing that through Nimrod, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later after the flood. So... Just an interesting thing. They're so willing to use that. The other thing just as interesting is the way that these stars are portrayed. These are pentagrams. I mean, we, we see the stars on the flag and they're just normal stars, but these are clearly slightly, I know it's designed to be kind of a 3D thing, but of course if you're familiar that pentagrams are very much a, an occultic thing, a symbol that's used in witchcraft and so on. Why? Why would Europe want to align itself with these things? Interestingly enough, this is a, a picture, this side, known as the Tower Building. This is in Strasbourg, the European Parliament Building, and it is clearly and intentionally been built to mirror and look like the Tower of Babel as per this picture. So there's clearly this intent to rebuild or work on that which had begun in Babel. Just as another aside, the UN has all their materials printed by the Lucis Trust, that was founded in 1922, originally known as the Lucifer Trust. Is that just a coincidence? I'll leave it with you. Just another, just thing, curious, there's in the tower building again, they house there the fifth parliament of Europe. It's very uh, luxurious and uh, palatial place with these wonderfully comfortable chairs and everything else where the members sit. Each of the 679 seats is assigned to an individual except for seat number 666 presently unallocated. Is that just a coincidence? Is there more to it than that? I'm not by any means espousing or suggesting that this individual is right or wrong or anything else. I just highlight this. If you go on the internet and you search for these things, you'll find loads about Europe and so on. This is just an American guy, uh, part of a church in America. Back in 1989, okay, so this is a long time ago in our time frame, was just commenting on the situation in Europe and the church and Britain and so on. Now, let me just read this, this comment he made. He says, there's a question of continuing interest to students of Bible prophecy or watching current events. There is a fundamental difference of outlook between Britain and the continental national um, and the impact of this on events will gradually separate the two. Now, I was watching uh, another um, video on YouTube yesterday um, not by Christian people, by just political people who feel that we are at a loss as a, a country by staying part of Europe. And they were giving their reasons for it and so on. Um, but they were talking about the way that Britain has always maintained this separation. We've always retained our independence. And there's loads of quotes being given by both British politicians and influential people and also by various people in Europe highlighting Britain as the real problem to unity in Europe. Because Britain are always sticking their feet in the you know, putting their mark in the ground and not willing to budge. And even things like the Euro, we wanted to keep the pound and so on. He goes on and says, um, we expect that Britain, so as Britain becomes estranged from Europe, she will restore her old strong trading links with these countries. And highlights some of those, the Commonwealth nations particularly. 
A friend of mine, quite senior in the RAF, he was talking to me. He said, from NATO's perspective, they're really not at all concerned whether we stay in or out. There's no security issue as far as NATO are concerned. So there's a lot of spin and things being placed on these things at the moment. But this character just comments at the end. He says, Britain's been under God's control for his purpose, a purpose to be revealed in the near future. Britain has no abiding place in Europe. She will be separated. Now, again, I'm not suggesting this guy is good. I don't know where he stands, what his theology is. But it's just interesting that based upon prophecies in the Bible, he believes that Britain has got to be separated from Europe. And that was back in 1989. Another individual, and there's loads of these that you can find. Uh, It says, Britain is identified in prophecies that concern those who protest and oppose the aggressive northern power, referring to Europe being north of, obviously, where Israel is who comes to invade Israel, she cannot protest and oppose herself. She is therefore, uh, perforce, not part of the European system when these prophecies are finally fulfilled. For this reason, writers over many years, some over a century ago, have seen Britain as being separated from Europe. Now I just share it with you because I don't know how you want to vote, and I'm not going to stand here this morning, and I, you know, the church's job is not to be controlling things politically. That's one of the things we may touch on briefly later. But Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And sadly, so often the churches try to exert great influence over political things. So I'm not here to say this morning how you should vote. I just think it's interesting when you look at some of the things going on behind the scenes in Europe. Why is, and why are those involved in the the decision-making processes so keen to identify themselves with things that are very anti Biblical, anti-scripture. This is interesting. And certainly these prophecies that are being referenced here, there is this implication. So vote as you feel God lead and guide you. But all I'd say is, wait and see, because I think the consensus at the moment in this country seems to be that we will stay in Europe. How interesting it would be if that then is turned around. And if it does get turned around and we find ourselves coming out of Europe, I just encourage you to go back to your Bibles and see what these things really mean for the days in which we live. Well, as we go into Revelation 17, a couple of things to really draw out of all this is one, that there is going to be a one-world government. Now, looking at what's going on in Europe at the moment, it is very interesting. Look at what's going on in America at the moment. I mean, I don't know what your view is about Donald Trump, but there's a lot of people that think that if Donald Trump were to become president, it could be the downfall of America. Of course, people in America, many of them think that he'd be great for them. But on an international stage, there's been a lot of concern. How will he represent America to other nations? He's not the greatest of diplomats, I think that's fair to say. So, America seemed to kind of disappear very much from biblical prophecy. Are we heading into times when all of a sudden Europe will gain momentum one way or another with or without this country? And what will happen to America? But certainly the Bible says there will be a one more government, and we're heading there. There's also going to be a one world religious system that is going to embrace all faiths, draw everything together. Now, this chapter we're looking at this morning, Revelation 17, foretells the destruction of this religious system that we're going to see has exerted enormous political sway over the governments of the world. And it's going to get to the point that these world governments are going to grow tired of her influence and destroy her. That's the summary of what we're going to look at this morning. And that will all make way, ultimately, for what we looked at in chapter 13, which will ultimately be the worship of Antichrist. Now, the timing of these things, just from a chronological point of view, as we've been looking at the study of Revelation for both chapter 17 and 18, seems to be the first three and a half years. This is the point that this religious system will have its day. Then we're going to get to the point that these ten kings will be established, and this is what we looked at in Revelation 13 and so on. And they will then rule with Antichrist for this last period of time, of which three of those kings are going to be subdued unto Antichrist. Now, I mention this because sometimes people get confused. The church will be taken before all this begins and will return at the second coming. That's what the Bible teaches. This whole period is seven years, known as the tribulation, divided into these two, three and a half year points. But this judgment, these chapters we're looking at, 17 and next week 18, all looking at this judgment of this religious system. Now, I'll just give you a couple of reasons why it has to be the first three and a half years. Firstly, the rule of the ten kings who are going to destroy Babylon 
doesn't occur until the three and a half year point. Now those kings will have had enough of her rule and so on, that's why they do it. Secondly, the last three and a half years, as we were looking in chapter 16, trade by sea is going to be impossible during those three and a half years. In Revelation 18, 17, we notice that there's still trade happening and occurring at sea. Because people at sea will observe a destruction. Thirdly, Antichrist is going to be worshipped by the entire world, we're told in chapter 13 of Revelation, for that last period of time, which means this religious system has got to be removed. You will find a number of these type of maps, some of them you'll find in in Bible handbooks and so on, and they kind of put this destruction of Babylon, as it's referred to at this point, somewhere towards the end of the seven years. But for the reasons I've just stated, I don't think that's the case. We need to be diligent. We need to remember Acts 17.11, which reminds us to always go and check these things out for yourself. Don't just take what people say. And don't ever take what I just say. Always go back and look at the Bible. Now, one thing I do want to mention, a lot of people seem to get this confused, chapters 17 and 18 are one account and not two. A lot of people will talk about spiritual Babylon, and political Babylon, as if we're dealing with two totally independent things. No, we're dealing with just one thing here. We're dealing with this spiritual entity, this Babylon, as it's referred to, represented as this harlot. The theme of these chapters is going to be the judgment of this individual. Chapter 17 is going to give us her description to help us identify who is being discussed and talked about. But chapter 18 will then see her destruction. So these two chapters have to go together. They're not talking about separate things. People that say that chapter 17 deals with the destruction of this religious system totally miss the point because the destruction doesn't occur until the next chapter. And by the way, chapter breaks were not included until uh, Archbishop Stephen Langton in the 12th century. So let's uh, jump in. I just want to say as well that I think in many ways this, these two chapters, particularly 17, are very much like a missing piece of a jigsaw. You know, if you've done a jigsaw, and uh, we do a number at home with the girls, if you've got a piece that's missing, sometimes you can't quite get the whole picture. You get a rough idea, but it doesn't quite work out. When you get that that missing piece, it all slots in. That's very much what these chapters are, I think, in, in a number of ways. They're pivotal in regard to our understanding of history. That's why they're important to us. It explains why there are so many false religions in the world. I mean, have you ever stopped as a Christian to ask yourself, why are there so many false religions? If God is in control... Why so many options for people to choose? You see, what we're going to look at here is often not taught. A lot of churches won't even touch this subject. And it gets replaced by misinformation, deceit, and just confusion generally. But you see, it unveils a reality that will change the way we look at the world. I really genuinely mean that. If you understand, and if I can communicate by God's grace this morning what I want to, I really believe it will change the way that you look at the world. Now... As I said already, the code is explained. The symbols, the imagery that's used in these verses, we're given the meanings. We're not left in doubt. Remember, as I said already, chapter 1, verse 1, John was given this revelation so that he could show the things that will shortly come to pass. 1 Corinthians 14.33, again, we're told that God is not the author of confusion. So, identifying who this individual is, this great whore, is not too difficult if we simply stick to the things that are revealed in the Bible. They'll guide us and they'll help us understand. So we've got the great whore. So we're going to try and identify who or what she is. Then we've got this scarlet beast mentioned. There's seven heads, seven mountains, ten horns, ten kings, and so on. So let's jump in and we'll try and unravel as we go through. Verse 1, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. Now, we've seen that already in the previous chapter. Those bowls of wrath, those vials poured out upon the earth. John now recognises, he's been kind of paying attention, recognises this angel as one of those who now seemingly takes him back in time to the beginning of this period and says, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits on many waters. Now, this is one of three occasions in the book that John is told to come here. It's kind of like, you know what you say to your children? Come here. You've got something to tell them. And they normally go, no, I'm not going to do it. So this is highlighting, I think, that something of great importance is about to follow. Notice again, and I will show unto thee. So this isn't designed to confuse John and leave John going, oh, I have no idea what that means. No, this was to show John the judgment of the great whore. You see, 
God wants us to know these things. And Thessalonians tells us that we're not in darkness. Now again, just returning to that thing I mentioned a moment ago about so many religions. You know, a lot of people will tell you that they're, you know, all roads lead to God anyway. I just think about that for a moment. If that were true, you know, if, yeah, you know, we, we, we almost seem that as the, the, the greatest level of tolerance and acceptance that actually we can all work together because we all believe in gods. We call gods different names and, you know, but actually it's all going to the same place. That, that would make God barbaric. You know, what kind of God would allow people to approach him in any way that they choose? What kind of God would allow people to call him by any name that suited them? You know, even we like people to refer to us by the name that we have. We don't like people just making up names for us. And this is God, we're talking about God. And what kind of God would establish a multitude of religions with totally contradictory beliefs and practices? See, countless numbers of believers give their lives to maintain their religious freedoms and their right to be different. But then actually reveal, oh, they're all going to the same place anyway. I mean, surely that reveals a, a ruthless tyrant of a god on a par with the, the Roman emperors who would watch their subjects fight to death in the Colosseum. Well, God's not like that. You see, those that promote the all roads lead to God philosophy do, of course, hail themselves as tolerant and accepting. But they're nothing of the sort. Consider what they're actually saying. What they're saying is that regardless of your heritage, regardless of what you believe, you've got to go to that one place that they say you've got to go to. I mean, that's more narrow-minded and dogmatic than anything Jesus ever said. Jesus said there's two destinations, the smoking and the non-smoking. And we will get to choose, heaven or hell. But those that would try and suggest that all roads lead to God, take away that reality and possibility of judgment. They just say that we're all going to the same place and God's just going to turn a blind eye to sin. Really? What kind of God would that be? So... John is told that he's going to be shown the judgment of the great whore. This we're going to try and understand. Throughout scripture, whoredom or adultery speaks of unfaithfulness to God specifically. Worshipping or serving someone or something instead of him. That was the crime of Israel in the Old Testament. A number of places you'll find it graphically portrayed in books like Ezekiel, Hosea, etc. But God speaks of Israel as his wife. And that they went after foreign gods and God holds them accountable for that. So very much this whole idea of adultery, we of course understanding in a human perspective, but God looks at it in terms of people's relationship with him. First commandment in Exodus 20 verse 11, you shall have no other gods before me. Now that's not, you can have other gods after God, but no, this is, you do not have any other gods before me. In his presence is what God says. It shouldn't even exist See, God doesn't want to be number one on a list of ten. God wants to be number one on a list of one. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God and wants to be worshipped alone. Why not? He's worthy. He deserves all of our adoration and worship. Okay, so we're told that this woman is sat upon many waters. Now, it indicates that her influence is worldwide. A number of times in the Bible we find that waters are used, very often idiomatically, of the Gentile world. And we'll find that actually confirmed. You can look ahead into verse 15. You'll see there already that we're told that the waters which thou sawest where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So no debate of what that means. It's very very simple, very clear. And she's going to draw people away from the worship of the one true God into spiritual adultery. So we understand straight away why she's given this label. This mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and so on. It's possibly the greatest crime in God's book, so deserves the strictest of judgments. The penalty for kidnapping, by the way, in the Old Testament was death. God views this in the same way because when people fall away into other cults or religions and so on, God sees it as kidnapping. Taking his children and deceiving them and taking them away into something that will bring them death, not life. And so the penalty for that is meted out the same as was given in the law. Verse 2, we carry on. This individual then, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So it's not only common people that are caught up in this, but kings and rulers of the earth have been intoxicated by her. She's become, if you like, irresistible to them. 
and exerted her power over them. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, it says, Whoso commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he that does so destroys his own soul. Well, people that have got involved with this woman, and we'll see again who this woman is in a moment, clearly they've lacked wisdom. They've done it for their own reasons, their own ends, whatever. But fornication comes from the Greek root word pornea. It's of course where we would get the, the word pornography and so on. It's The idea is unlawful, intimate indulgence. In the Bible, worshipping any false concepts of God are often referred to as fornication for the unbeliever outside of marriage and adultery for unfaithful believers as in within marriage. Those two terms are used and applied to this individual. But the reference primarily here is to unbelievers. Hence it's spiritual fornication that is in view. People that have gone after other gods. And notice that the kings of the earth have committed fornication. It indicates that they've made a conscious decision to be involved. They weren't just duped into this. It's very much a a relationship of selfish convenience for them. One with pretended affection. Now the angel at this point is also quoted from Jeremiah. This is the verse that Peter read for us a moment ago. Just to read a portion Flee out of the midst of Babylon, deliver every man his soul, be not cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, he will render unto her a recompense. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that has made the earth drunken. He's saying that this influence has been worldwide and so many people have been duped by it. The nations have drunken over wine, therefore the nations are mad. So you start to see the scale of this chapter in terms of what it's addressing is addressing something that has if I'm going to put it in a more simple way for us pulled the wool over people's eyes so he carried me away in the spirit verse 3, into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet coloured beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns now, we've already met this beast if you remember back in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 the scarlet beast represents, and we'll see this in a moment, firstly the devil himself That was very clear from chapter 12. Secondly, Antichrist. And thirdly, the empire of Antichrist. So this beast is used in various ways, but representative of all of these things. And of course, that kind of makes sense for us. We'll look at those in a little more detail. So, just to clarify, the scarlet beast represents the devil. Back in chapter 12, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, where there's a scarlet beast, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And the great dragon was cast out, and we're told, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. No question that this is referring to Satan, this scarlet beast. Secondly, the scarlet beast is representing Antichrist. Chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, I stood upon the sand of the sea, and a beast saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. There we are again, those seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns ten crowns. And upon his head is the name of blasphemy, and the beast which I saw was likened unto a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So Satan gives unto Antichrist his authority, his power to, to do the things that he does. So this beast representative of Antichrist as well. And then in Daniel... Chapter 7, this scarlet beast also representative of the kingdom of Antichrist. He says thus, he says this is Daniel chapter 7 verses 23 onwards, the fourth beast, and we're talking about the empires that would come on the world, shall be a fourth kingdom upon the earth. This shall be diverse from all kingdoms. Now it started with Rome, and shall devour the whole earth. Rome effectively did. And shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And then we're told, and the ten horns out of this kingdom... Yet one of the things, just to pause for a moment, that's interesting, the Bible speaks of the kingdom of Babylon, that it fell. We know it fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. But then that subsequently fell to Greece. Greece subsequently fell to Rome, but Rome never fell. Rome was never conquered. Rome had just dissipated. And since then, all the various parts of the Roman Empire have all taken their terms in ruling the world, effectively. France has had its moment, and Spain, and even this country. But we've never been, the Roman Empire was never conquered. And out of that kingdom, out of the Roman Empire, we're told ten kings are going to arise. 
And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three. And that's our reference that Antichrist is then going to subdue three of those kings. So this beast again representative of this scarlet, or this scarlet beast representative of these three things. Again, ten horns, ten kings, all these ideas being drawn together. So the beast is symbolic of the devil, Antichrist, and his kingdom that is yet to arise. Their mission and purpose are one. Antichrist is empowered by the devil and is the ruler of his kingdom. Thus we have one image of the scarlet beast depicting the whole. I hope that clarifies and makes sense. So we should note from the context that is the beast who is full of names of blasphemy and who has seven heads and ten horns and not the woman. Let me just say that again because a lot of people miss this point and they get into all sorts of side little tangents from here. We're told quite clearly that it's the beast who is full of names of blasphemy. We saw that, if you remember in chapter 13, so many times that idea of this blasphemy by Antichrist and the false prophet and so on. But it's him well, this beast that has the seven heads and the ten horns, it's not the woman that has seven heads and ten horns. But what should grab our attention is that the woman is riding the beast. Now, clearly we're talking about a political kingdom that is yet to come that's going to be made up somehow of ten kingdoms. Now, the world has already been divided into ten areas geographically, both from a trading and economic perspective and for a number of other purposes. But this woman seems to have this this power over this political system. So now we're going to get given a a photo fit. And we're going to try and see if we can match this. We're told that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colour and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, the first thing to note here, there's a woman. That's the first identifier for us. That should help us a little bit because it kind of cuts out a lot of the other possible options we could look at. There's a deliberate contrast drawn here with what we saw in chapter 12, the mystical Eve. If you remember there, that woman was clothed with Israel. John sees this woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars. Clothed with the nation of Israel so that the Messiah could be brought safely into the world. That was what we saw in chapter 12. This woman, in contrast, is arrayed in all of these things we look at. So, we've got a woman that is given this clothing. This whore represents everything that is unrighteous, and she is to prepare the way for the false Messiah. Just as we saw in chapter 12, that mystical Eve, if you like, was there to make her way, coming all the way down from the real Eve, from Adam's wife, all the way down through the Old Testament, all the way down to Mary, through whom Jesus was born. That wonderful line that comes down. And God protected that line by surrounding it with the nation of Israel, keeping Israel separate from the other nations, and so on. For this woman, her role is to prepare the way for the false Messiah. The woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet. That's the second identifier, very specific colours are mentioned. There were three primary colours in the Jewish tabernacle. Back in Exodus chapter 26 verse 1, this is, Moreover you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, and blue, purple, and scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim you shall weave them. Now, blue, seemingly in scripture, has always a reference to the heavenly realm. Purple, the royal realm, and scarlet, the earthly realm. And what's interesting is the two colours that are chosen, or this woman is arrayed in, is the royal realm and the earthly realm, but notice, not the heavenly realm. The third identifier is that she's rich beyond measure, decked with gold and precious stones. The fourth identifier for us is that she has this golden cup in her hand. She has a cup in her hand full of things that are an offence to God. Now, in the Jewish temple, this cup... This golden cup was there, was used to hold the blood of the sacrifice. Here it's full of abominations. The filthiness of a fornication and so on. We'll talk a bit more about that. But then verse 5 is told, And upon her head, or forehead, was the name written, Mystery. Notice that, because a lot of people read, Mystery Babylon. And then from that, they go off on other tangents. But it's Mystery. Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. First thing I want to just point out is that 
In scripture we have a number of mysteries in the New Testament. Paul says a number of times, behold I tell you a mystery. And in the context it's always something that was once hidden, but it is now revealed. So this is something that now we can understand. This was hidden, this was a mystery. A mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So some more identifying clues. There's something mysterious about her, something hidden, something spiritual. She's identified with Babylon very clearly. She's a mother. And that should just make us think a bit, which obviously means she has children, has offspring. Abominations started with her. She's got the mother of harlots and abominations, just to clarify that. And her influence is worldwide. Her title, mystery to be interpreted mystery, uh, mystically or spiritually, Babylon comes from the Hebrew word Babel, which means confusion. The great, the Greek word megas just means huge. So this is actually one of the things Ron Matson, our former pastor here, had said that you could give her this title, huge spiritual confusion. That's actually a really helpful definition of this woman, because that's exactly what she is. Huge spiritual confusion is exactly what we see in the world today. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Let me just ask you the question. Why are, we said that, why, why are we told the same thing twice? Or are we not? Look at this again. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. Now most of us, probably a little bit presumptuously and arrogantly, maybe think that every time we see the saints, it must be talking about us. No, it doesn't. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There are two groups identified here. The saints and the martyrs of Jesus. So who are the saints? Well, this woman is clearly responsible for shedding the blood of the saints, for shedding the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Well, martyrs of Jesus, no problem. We understand that is Christians, believers, followers of Christ. But the saints throughout the Old Testament, that term refers to Israel. So this woman is responsible for shedding the blood of the church and also of Israel. So we may clearly say she's very anti-Semitic. And then John says, the one I saw, I wondered with great admiration. But the Greek implies here that he perceived, that's the word that we have for wondered. He perceived and was amazed. It's almost as if like the penny drops and suddenly the lights go on. As John is looking, it's kind of like, really? And as we go on, hopefully the same will happen for us. And the angel said unto me, wherefore did thou marvel? This is kind of almost a rebuke to John. I mean, this angel, bear in mind to this angel this, this is one of the angels that's had all those nasty things, those vials. And it's this angel that says to John, why did you marvel? You know, John, you really should have got this, is I think what the suggestion is. He should have understood to a point at least, maybe if he'd done his homework properly. But this angel goes on and says, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So John doesn't need to worry or wonder because now the angel is going to explain. The beast that thou saw. Now, so we're going to start with the beast, not with the woman. We start with the beast. The beast that thou saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and shall go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now that may, to start with, be a little bit confusing for us. When did the spirit of Antichrist manifest itself in the past? Well, quite simply, the answer is in the person of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was called the the son of perdition. We, We read in Luke's Gospel, Luke 22, that then Satan entered into Judas, the surname of Iscariot, and so on. John 17, Jesus said, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Referring, of course, to Judas. So, we're told that this, the beast, this power, this spirit that's there, was in the person of Judas Iscariot when Satan indwelt him to betray Jesus. Is not, for this period of history that we've just gone through the last 2,000 years, has not been operating in the world through the person, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now this is speaking of this spirit again that is going to then come and indwell Antichrist, effectively the spirit of Satan himself. I just want to 
highlight something else here, because I think this is really quite wonderful. It says, speaks of those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, of course, those are going to be deceived, those are going to suffer what's going on. But of course, the flip side of that is, it again refers to those whose names are in the book of life from the foundation of the world. It's wonderful news for us as we sit here this morning. It's remarkable, actually, that our names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. What a, a comfort if you're a believer. Because, I mean, Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord. God has, has done this work. Our names were written in his book before the foundation of the world, before you were even born. Now, of course, someone may object and say, ah, but that means then God chooses those who are saved, and that's not fair for those who are not. Well, maybe true, but then you see everybody gets a choice. And for somebody to say that God didn't choose someone, well, all they've got to do is put their trust in Jesus Christ and they immediately flip over to the side where they are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's often kind of put this way, that if you imagine at heaven there's a, a door and you read on the sign above the door, whosoever will may enter. Anybody can go in. And when you make that choice to go in, you look back on the other side, it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You see, God never violates our free choice. God is outside of time. So God already knows all those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. God doesn't coerce or force anybody. Everybody has a free choice to put their trust in Jesus. Nobody will be able to claim, I didn't know. So if anybody's worried whether their name is in the book, put your trust in Jesus Christ and then you'll find you've got that guarantee that it is. Verse 9. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now we've already been told that the woman is sitting upon the beast. So we should just be able to draw, join the dots together and realize that the seven heads of seven mountains are referencing to the beast, not the woman herself. Mountains in scripture are symbolic of kingdoms. A number of times and references you can see there. This is followed in the next verse, which just logically goes on and says, and there are seven kings. Well, if you've got seven kingdoms, of course it follows that you're going to have seven kings. It says five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. Seven kingdoms, as I said, suggest seven kings. We're told that five are no longer. Now, one is in power at that time, and the seventh is yet to come. To understand, you need to be Israel-centric here in your view of kingdoms. So much of the Bible is written from that perspective. Seven kingdoms that have effectively ruled or dominated over Israel. Before Daniel, there were two. There was Egypt and Assyria. Daniel, of course, is the one that gives us so much of this information. But Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, we find that we've got four that were in or around following on from Daniel. Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. And there was one final empire of Antichrist. So actually from this, what we're told here, these kingdoms that have gone already, the five that are already passed, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, they'd already passed by the time John is receiving this revelation in the first century. At the time he's receiving this revelation, Rome was the power. But he's told that there's another kingdom that is yet to come, and that will be the revised, revived either way. Roman Empire. So again, five have fallen. So those five, one is, bring Rome, and the other has not yet come, that final kingdom of Antichrist. And when he comes, we're told he must continue a short time. Back in Revelation 13, we're told that Antichrist is given just a, a short time to rule. Just given 42 months, three and a half years, that last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Verse 11, and the beast that was, and it's not even, even he is the eighth, and he's of the seventh, and goes into perdition. So he's going to be part of this final world kingdom and be separate from it as well. The ten horns which thou saw are ten kings. So there's no debate or controversy. That's very simple. Which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind which shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him, who's that? Who is those that are with the king of kings? Well, I would suggest it would be us, because right back at the beginning of 
time in the sense we have Enoch, a prophet, who prophesied of those that return with the Lord. He says, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. Speaking of us, those that will return at the second coming with Jesus. Lord of lords, king of kings, and they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. Again, names that are applied to us. And he said unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the horse sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So we've, we've dealt with the beast now. We've identified that it's this kingdom of Antichrist that is yet to come, which will be seen with these ten kings. Now we're turning our attention to the explanation of who this woman is. The first thing that we're told is, actually, this woman has worldwide influence. Symbolic, as I say, of the whole world. She sits on many waters. The whole world has been under the influence of this woman, effectively. And the influence has transcended the ages. In all the previous kingdoms, she's been exerting her intoxicating power. The ten horns which thou saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This is speaking of the judgment which is to come. Hasn't yet happened, it's going to happen in chapter 18. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. You see, what's going to happen here is Satan is going to allow this religious system to bring all the religions together, and then he's going to use these ten kings to destroy it, and leaving nothing but just the worship of Antichrist. You know, I don't know how many of you are at all bothered about Star Wars. Probably some of the ladies you couldn't care less. But, you know, for, if you are, if you've seen Star Wars, you'll, you'll understand how Palpatine, Senator Palpatine, plays both sides against the others. You know, he effectively creates this problem and then comes in to try and solve the problem and then ends up getting this clone army created and then he uses that clone army. This is exactly what's happened here. The the devil has created this false religious system and when he's finished with it, he'll destroy it. It almost looks like you've got two sides fighting against each other but you've got this master puppeteer in a sense behind the scenes pulling the strings. I mean, in some sense, it's brilliant. It's such a, a clever plan, and it works. And sadly, many, many people are deceived by these things. The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now this leads us to the question, so who is the woman, and what is the city? Now, we've got, as you know, we've been going through this, we've got study notes that are accompanying, because there's a lot more than we can try and get out in just the time we have together on Sunday mornings. Um, the study notes for these two chapters are about 18,500 words, if you want to spare the time to go through that. Um, the ones I'll put up on, online this week, um, just about uh, 12,000 words, breaking this down, and we go into a lot more detail than I can take you through this morning. I encourage you to look at it, to read it through. But just to give you a very quick summary, there's a lot of speculation over the identity of this individual, this religious entity, if you like. Some see her as the Roman Empire itself. Some suggest the Roman Catholic Church. People have suggested the United States of America. Always like to blame America. New York City has been suggested, believe it or not. And, and you know, a lot of people got very excited, uh, and I don't mean this in an irreverent or, uh, way, but um, a disrespectful way, but when the Twin Towers came down, because it was a centre of a lot of trade and commerce and everything else, people went to Revelation 18, and you'll see next week, and it says, fallen Fallen is Babylon the Great. And they liken it to the two twin towers. And they said, well look, fallen, fallen is a double reference. And people got very excited by those things. I'll comment more on next week. And of course, it's not the case. But a lot of people have suggested that because the, the UN has had its home in New York and so on, that there's implications there. But anyway, others have suggested a revitalized nation of Babylon, or nation or city of Babylon in Iraq. A final one world religion centered in Babylon in Iraq is another suggestion. Now, coming to the chase, the majority of Bible commentators, conservative Bible commentators, will tell you they believe this woman is the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? And one of the reasons they'll tell you that is because they'll point out that Rome was built on seven hills. And there, you can see them highlighted. This is Capitolina here. This is the hill where this Treaty of Rome was signed. Upon the in the, the building that now sits on the side of the Temple of Jupiter. So people see a lot of connection with Rome because of this. Now, let's just explore some things. Because the Roman Catholic Church sees herself as a female entity. They refer to themselves as the Mother Church. 
Well, that fits our, you know, we do the kind of the photo fit thing. You know, you're the criminal and you try and get the photo to match what you, you've seen. Well, we've been given the information. We're trying to see if it fits. Well, certainly the Roman Catholic Church sees itself as a woman. It sees itself as a mother and clearly has produced offspring. Even the Church of England arguably is an offspring of the Catholic Church. She's clothed in purple and scarlet. They're the colours of the Vatican, without any question. She's rich. And again, in the notes, I quote extensively from Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, which is a fabulous book. I mean, the the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church is breathtaking. Full Full of filthiness and fornication. And again, in the study notes and for a more thorough view of this, Dave Hunt's book again, A Woman Rides the Beast, goes through in detail the the filthiness and fornication that has existed within the Roman Catholic Church through the centuries is shocking. Full of mysterious inner groups. Again, so true of what's happened. The Roman Catholic Church identified with Babylon. They even point to the scripture in Peter where Peter makes reference to Babylon and they say Peter was using that to speak of Rome. And they use it to argue that Peter therefore had been to Rome and, and so on. So even the Catholic Church themselves identify themselves with Babylon. We could certainly say that she is the mother of harlots and abominations. A lot of things have come out of the Roman Catholic Church that are so far removed from the, that which the Bible teaches. And of course, talk about huge influence. She sits on many waters. I mean, the funeral of Pope John Paul was attended by more heads of state than any other event in the history of the world. It was viewed by more people on television than any other televised event to this date. Incredible. I mean, we could, we could just go on and there's so much more that we could talk about. And again, time doesn't allow this morning. I encourage you to, to look at what I've tried to summarize in the study notes for this. And of course, no question about it, the Roman Catholic Church has been very anti-Semitic, but has also put to death many Christians. You know when St. Augustine arrived in this country to bring a Christianity? He was somewhat surprised to find it was already here. If you get the book we've got at the back by Bill Cooper, The Authenticity for the New Testament, Bill makes a very convincing argument to show that the gospel was in this country within two to three years of the resurrection. Wonderful. And so, 300 or so years, or so 500 or so years, wasn't it? Augustine basically comes over here. He ends up forcing the Christians, a lot of the believers who are here, back up into North Wales and has them massacred. He didn't come to bring Christianity, he came to bring Catholicism. Okay, so is the Roman Catholic Church our mystery figure here? Well, I would say No. You see, Dave Hunt in his book and many others come to that conclusion because the photo fit is so, so close. You kind of, almost all the evidence points that way. But I just point out a few things. Firstly, the Roman Catholic Church did not originate abominations. It's perpetuated and added to, but didn't originate them. Nor has it existed throughout the history of the world to deceive the nations. That which is in view here has existed through the time of those kingdoms that we've mentioned already. You see, the power that has dominated the nation, the nations predates Rome and can be traced back to Babylon itself. You see, after the flood, Satan launched a very subtle threefold stratagem. Firstly, to set up and create a world government. That was to manipulate mankind against the seed of the woman that had been promised. Of course, with that, he started with Babel. God put a stop to that. He will Reinstigate it. We've already seen this morning that he's doing it and seemingly Europe is a mechanism through which he's doing that. False religion was established to deceive mankind into following a false seed. See, Satan doesn't mind what you follow, what you go after as long as it's not Jesus Christ. And then there was that seek and destroy plan to annihilate the, annihilate the threat of the real seed. And that's why so much of the Old Testament is full of battles Because Satan was trying to destroy Israel, trying to stop the possibility of Jesus being born. Now the thing that we are most interested in is this one here, this false religion that was established. See, the world government, as I said, was abruptly halted at the Tower of Babel, but being re-established now. And they will take up arms incredibly against Jesus. We'll talk more about that in later chapters. False religion, this, I honestly think, is a satanic stroke of genius. 
You see, it was established at Babel, Babylon. Cush, who was the grandson of Noah, was the architect of the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, his son, becomes the world's first dictator. Bacchus, or Bar Cush, son of Cush, was another name given to Nimrod. Another godlike character from antiquity that was worshipped. Nimrod apparently, according to the legend, was killed by Shem because of his idolatry, because of his rebellion against God. Shem, being a godly man, seemingly went and tried to kill and was successful in killing Nimrod. Nimrod was married though. He had a wife named Semiramis. She had a real problem suddenly occur. Because her husband was dead, potentially she could lose power. Now a quote from this book, The Two Babylons, we've got a couple of copies at the back. If you want to understand the details of these things, I encourage you to get a copy of this. It's not bedtime reading. It's quite heavy. But the details, the the things that are drawn together, I'll talk more in a moment, but incredible. Let me just read a couple of quotes. If there was one who was more deeply concerned in the tragic death of Nimrod than another, it was his wife, Semiramis who from an originally humble position had been raised to share with him the throne of Babylon. What in this emergency shall she do? Shall she quietly forego the pomp and pride to which she had been raised? No. Though the death of her husband has given a rude shock to her power, yet her resolution and unbounded ambition were in flight. In her life, so in life, her husband had been honoured as a hero. In death, she would have him worshipped as a god. Yes, as the woman's promised seed. Zoroaster. You may have heard of that cult, a religious, even I believe Freddie Mercury was uh, said to uh, be a follower of Zoroaster. So she comes up with this incredible plan. So rather than give up a throne, Semiramis told the story that her husband Nimrod, though dead, was now reincarnated or brought back to life as her baby son. She was carrying a baby. And as she gives birth to this baby, she tells everybody that this is Nimrod reincarnated. And so begins the worship of the mother and the child. This is way before the Catholic Church. Both Nimrod, supposedly reincarnated, and Semiramis become worshipped as gods. She becomes known as the Queen of Heaven. And her son, who she names Tammuz, was hailed as the promised seed. They understood the biblical prophecies. They knew what was going to happen. Almost all false religions have come from this origin and can be demonstrably traced back to that point. I mean, Alexander Hislop in his book does an incredible job of tying in almost every religion you can possibly think of and showing that the roots all go back to Babylon. Thousands of years before the birth of the real seed, Jesus Christ, false religions were worshipping the mother and child and spreading out all around the world. There's, there's, although much later, Mary is revered in the, the Quran. You know, in Egypt, the mother and child were worshipped under the name there of Isis and Osiris. In India, even to this day, as Isi and Iswara. In Asia, as Sibyl and Theosis. In pagan Rome, as Fortuna and Jupiter. So all of these ideas all got um, spread around various cultures. And it's not just the mother and child part, so many other aspects of these things as well. In Greece, as Irene and Plutus. Alexander Hislop comments and says also, even in Tibet, in China and Japan, the Jesuit missionaries were astonished to find the counterpart of the Roman Catholic Madonna and her child as devoutly worshipped as in Papal Rome itself. Xing Mu, the Holy Mother in China, being represented with a child in her arms and the glory around her, exactly as if a Roman Catholic artist had been employed to set her up. They go there to bring Catholicism and find they're already worshipping the mother and child and many, many other things as well. The Hebrew, Mazaroth, that told God's plan of redemption in the stars, became corrupted into the Zodiac. And again, you know, ever stop to wonder why it's the same in all cultures around the world? It has a single point of origin. It goes back to Babylon. In fact, it pre- the, the Mazaroth itself predates Babylon. God used it to declare his glory, his plan, but it got corrupted. Christmas, Easter, Lent, Lady Day, the Rosary, the sign of the cross even, from the T in the name Tammuz, worship of relics, the doctrine of purgatory, an elite priesthood, sacrifice of the mass, and so many other things all have their origin in, origin in Babylon. See, the false religious system that had led people away from the worship of the true God and symbolized as this woman that we're looking at in Revelation 17 has been skillfully established by Satan since the time of the Tower of Babel. 
with one purpose, to unite all mankind and thus reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages of the people. And for this, she will work with the ten kings until they finish with her. See, once mankind has been reunited again through this false religious system, Satan will have no further use for it, and it will then cause all mankind to worship him in the person of Antichrist. And just as the woman in Revelation 12 was clothed with Israel in order to complete her task, that of bringing the promised Messiah, the seed into the world. So this queen of heaven is clothed with purple and scarlet and decked with gold, precious stones and pearls, the colours of the Vatican, the colours of the Roman Catholic Church, in order to get the work done. You see, Rome fits this photo fits so well because Rome is the clothing that God, or the, sorry, the Satan has manipulated and used. So in one sense, the conclusion that the Roman Catholic Church is this harlot is not strictly speaking wrong, but it's also not strictly speaking accurate either. Because this spiritual entity, if you like, this woman began in Babylon, has been clothed with the Roman Catholic Church, which is drawing in all faiths and all religions. You know, look how many so-called Protestants are now aligning themselves again with the Catholic Church. The Lutheran Church some years ago signed a declaration of conformity and agreeing with the Roman Catholic Church, suggesting that all that had occurred because the Reformation was just a misunderstanding over words. How many people died and gave their lives during that time? And what would Martin Luther say to the church that has borne his name to say that they just said, oh, sorry guys, I made a mistake. For almost 1,500 years, this satanic spiritual entity has used Roman Catholicism to her own ends and will continue to do so until all religions come under her banner. When she's done this, the job started by Semiramis, no doubt Satan working behind the scenes in Babylon almost four and a half thousand years ago will be complete. This part of Satan's master plan will then be accomplished. All that remain is the removal of this false religious system and the unveiling of Antichrist who will then cause all men to worship the dragon. That's what we're going to look at as we carry on next week into the destruction of this religious system. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, help us to understand the full impact of what this chapter is teaching us. Lord, that there is a religious power at work to draw people away from the truth through any means possible. Lord, help us to be mindful. Help us to be vigilant. Lord, help us to be discerning. Lord, help us to realize that you have given us the truth in your word. And Lord, we have a roadmap. So Father, please now, as we go from here this morning, be with us, keep us safe, keep us close to you, we pray most importantly. And just help us to grow in knowledge and grace. Lord, that we can live our lives to bring honor and glory to the real Savior, the real solution to all of mankind's problems. Because Jesus, we want to keep our eyes upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith. For it's in your name we ask these things. Amen.